We're going to be in Acts chapter 5, and I'm going to um, walk you through verses 11 through 14 this morning, and talking about the, the reality that we um, serve a God who is fearsome. And that the idea of fear, is, uh, it tends to be muted in our conversation. We, we much more prefer um, the, the thought of respectfulness. And um, the truth is, uh, that, doesn't, that doesn't actually pan out the way that you think it does. I'll show you why. Because respect is not quite the same thing as fear. Though that's often kind of used to explain the idea when it says, well, we should fear God. And lest we think you know, children should be cowering in fear before the Lord. We, we say, well, that just really means respect. But um, unless we're going to redefine what respect means, that doesn't, those, those aren't quite synonymous. And so I, I really want to walk us through um, that truth this morning because uh, it has not changed, Old Testament to New Testament. And, and that's really what we've been walking through in Acts. This, this picture that's being drawn um, for us by Luke is to, to make this account of, of why, why this different economy of God? Why, why is God not just in the temple anymore? How is, what does the age of the Spirit really mean? What, what does the kingdom on earth really look like? And um, with all that being uh, just sort of an, an introduction, um, there's two ways to read this title. Dangerous Comfort. Great. Fear. So it depends how you make the pause and where you put the emphasis. It could be like, oh, great. Fear. Like, oh, no. Or like, great. Fear. Like, okay. So it's the second one. <laughs> it's the second one where it's, uh, it's positive and beneficial. So let me pray for us before we read the text together. Ask God to, um, to help me not to say anything wrong and, and uh, that he wouldn't have for us and for him to prepare our hearts um, that we might hear what he would say. Father, you're good, and we trust this morning in your promise that your word does not return void, so I ask that you would help me to faithfully declare um, what it is that you want to say. I am not uh, my own, so I ask that you would just use um, a willing tool to speak your truths this morning. God, um, we have um, stubborn hearts, and... Um, we need your help to, to soften, plow, plow the ground so that um, we can understand what it is that you would say and that we would receive it, um, that you would do um, a glorious work in us by showing us um, the beauty of fearing you and the comfort in doing so. So God, um, I just pray that you would give us hearts that are soft to receive your word. God, always we need a, your eyes to behold truth, ears to hear it. Father, we love you. We thank you for your kindness to us. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay. Um, here we go. Verses 5 through 11. I'm already, there it is. We do have it. Praise the Lord. <laughs> I thought my slides were wrong again, and that always throws me off, but they're not. Here we go, starting in verse 11. This is uh, following just after um, Sapphira has, has breathed her last given up the ghost, and it says in verse 11 that great fear came upon the whole church and all who heard these things. So anybody who had heard um, this, this happening, and it says, now many signs and wonders were regularly done among um, the people by the hands of the apostles, and they were all together in Solomon's portico, but none of the rest dared join them. But the people held them in high esteem, and more than ever believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women. Now, um, the, the reality is that 
what had just happened amongst the believers in um, the effects of lying to the Holy Spirit has borne fruit. And the fruit of um, eliminating hypocrisy and eliminating sin within the body is beneficial. It, 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 it causes multiplication within the church. And, um, and it says that the grounding for this is the fear of the Lord. Now, this is not new information. This is um, really, it's 101 in, in Christianity. And, and the very opening of Proverbs, Proverbs verse 1, one, excuse me, 1 verse 7 is the, the, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Do you know this? Heard this? Hopefully so. Instead of thinking of beginning as uh, a certain level of amount, think of it as the beginning as starting a project or the foundation. So if you want to think about it like this, the, the beginning of knowing God is fearing him. The foundation from which you must build on is the fear of the Lord. And, um, and, and I mentioned that we don't like the idea of of fear being something that we should, um, we should have. And so we ought to sort that out because we're commanded to do it. And so when we think of fear in terms of respect, or we kind of recategorize it just so it's a little more palatable, um, it, it doesn't work the same. So this is New Testament. Uh, I could go lots of places in the Old Testament because it's a common phrase. But this is New Testament. And um, in Philippians, Paul is commanding those in Philippi He says, now you've obeyed in my presence, but now much more in my absence. He says this, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Do you see this? Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Now, I said I would try to help you see that, that respect and fear are not the same thing. So just replace fear in that sentence with respect. So work out your own salvation with respect and trembling. Do, do respect and trembling, do, do those, are those synonymous? They're not. Nobody goes, I respect that guy so much, I just tremble when he walks in the room. It, it doesn't, it, it doesn't, those don't connect. And so the reality is that fear has a connotation of, of what you believe fear to mean. It means every bit of that. Now, it, it, it has a, a specific design in, in mind what it means um, to fear. And so fear is not the muted idea that we often want to present to help people not be afraid of God. But if we are uh, afraid of God, that, that should be um, as a result of the knowledge of, of understanding something, even a small piece of who he is. If he is the God who created everything, who holds life and death in his hands, nothing happens or occurs without his knowledge and his deciding so, that's, that's a source of this is somebody that has power and control. I should fear that. that the, the, the knowledge of who God is should result in some kind of acknowledgement of that reality, of his character. Does that make sense? Okay? So it's not, it's not the idea of, oh, I, I respect God. Well, yeah, you should respect him, but you should also fear him in, that, in the sense that you actually believe fear to mean. You don't go, I respect fire, you know? So I'll call it Mr. Fire now or something like that. Right? It, it, doesn't, it doesn't work the same. So why should Christians fear? Or what should Christians fear? Because I, I think we, we think often of Scripture telling us not to fear. In fact, that's like the most often uh, repeated command throughout Scripture. It's just like, fear not or have no fear. And um, we're going to realign that this morning. But um, fear has a, has a natural function. It, is, it has a purpose in your life. Just... Um, like in terms of living, 
things that you, you have natural innate fears, I should say that. Um, not, not that everything is a learned fear. Um, some things are socially um, taught to us, but it's for preservation of life. This is why you don't just walk over the edge of a cliff or something like that. And why you don't just, you know, randomly walk into the things that, to dangerous situations. Fear has a, has a, pr- a preserving value, right? It, it, it's a protective um, uh, source in our lives. And so um, this, is, this is an important uh, reality because it, it serves a purpose naturally for us, but it also serves a, a spiritual purpose for us. So what should Christians fear and why should they fear? So what God wants for us in understanding who he is is not to to terrify us so that we might run away, but to realize that in his character, that drawing near to him, that this fearsomeness, that when we belong to him, becomes a source of protection and not a source of of fear for us or trembling that we should um, fear his judgment. So he doesn't want us to, to run away um, but the, the nugget there that we, we need to grasp onto is that it means that we must be near him to, to enjoy that difference in relationship to him. And um, if, if you think about this in terms of the, the um, when, when God uh, helps the, uh, he doesn't help, he provides all of the, the means for the Israelites to escape from Egypt's grasp, right? From, from Pharaoh and from slavery and from the tyranny that they're experiencing in life there. So, so God sends all of these, these um, plagues that if you read the specific details of them are, are terrifying in and of themselves. God's controlling nature. He's, he's controlling all, all these different things and they're bringing terror upon the Egyptian people, right? You, you understand this? Yes? Okay, God's bringing the 10 plagues and... Um, the Israelites live among the Egyptians. Yes, they live in like sort of a, a, a segregated population, if you will. But they don't fear God in the sense that they're afraid that those plagues will come upon them, which is sort of an interesting, uh, you know, dichotomy there, where we have a, a God who's revealing himself in terrifying ways against the people who are called God's enemies. And he's called the Israelites his, his own children. And so he's, uh, he's, his hand of protection is on them. So they go and they exit, they exit Egypt and they, you know, God provides miraculously all the way throughout. And they're never afraid of God as though he will smite them uh, in the way that they ought to be until he comes at Mount Sinai and he's revealing the law. And he, remember he says, don't even touch the mountain. And tell everybody to wash their clothes. We talked about this consecration. Prepare yourselves because the Lord is coming. And it says when he shows up, and it's just a manifestation of a little bit of God's power in the, in the form of a storm. There's a great there's thunder and lightning. And it says his voice sounded like trumpets to them. And they, they said they couldn't bear the sound of his voice. And now they're terrified of who God is. Is, is this, a, this is a, an interesting juxtaposition. And the, and the reality that we have a, a people who... While God is revealing his wrath against his enemies, they don't think of God as terrifying to themselves. But when God is among them and they're commanded then to draw near to this God, but not so near that they're consumed, then they see him as terrifying. And this is what it means to fear God. Draw near to me, see something of who I am, but respect who I am. Now, respect there doesn't mean the same thing that you think that it means. And when you're normally, hey, Mr. Fire, right? Now you see something of the terrifying nature of what respect should command in you in responding to this God. So um, 
We have a, we have a confidence that, that God's um, nature means something um, positive for us and not just something negative all the time. And um, the, uh, the reality is that um, we should see several things in the text about um, who, who God is and what it means to fear him and how that works its way out in um, the church. And so um, I have uh, just four observations about the, the, the Acts passage. Then I want to finish the, um, the talk of, of, of fearfulness so that we can move forward in um, understanding how God is growing the church. So um, here's, here's the foundation. Um, trusting in, in God's goodness and protection and love is not incompatible with fearing God. It is the result of it. So um, as these, the, the, the people come and they gather and they see what God has done in, in um, eliminating sin, eliminating hypocrisy in their midst, this, it says it, it causes great fear in them, not just in the church, but in those who are outside of the church as well. And the, the, the response to this is not, we have to get away from God. It's, it's that we must uh, draw near to God, those who, uh, who are authentically um, part of the church. And so um, if the church's purpose, which it is, is to reflect God's image, um, to be a holy people, then this is, this is the grounds of it. To, to fear who God is, to understand that, and then to respond to it. And so, um, here's, here's four things that I, I see happening in this little transition here. Um, it, it says that the church is growing, and um, it, some people are kept out, and some people are included in. Some people are afraid to join, and others are not. It says, not all growth is from God, but only good growth is from God. Not, not, all, not, not everybody that piles into the pool is, uh, is good growth. But when God causes the growth, it is good growth. And uh, making that designation is not up to us, but it comes out of, um, of holding fast to God's fearfulness. Because the closer we get to God's holiness, the more we embrace it, and the fear of God increases. You, you don't get closer to the proverbial lion in the zoo and feel um, less aware of who he is, Right? If, if, if I ask you to sleep in the lion's den, you're not going to be like, oh, it was fine when I was outside, you know, tossing, whatever, meat chunks to him when I was safely across the moat. The closer you get to God, you don't think less of his holiness, you understand it more, and therefore you respect and revere it more. Does that make sense? So the, the, the closer um, that God's people come to him, the more we draw near to him, the more that we embrace who he is, the greater um, the fear of God among his people. And because of this, the presence and the fear of God makes a people holy. Understanding who he is, this is, this is why, um, not just that we avoid sin because we're afraid that he'll smite us, but because we, we carry his name and because he's a holy God. And so what this does is twofold. It condemns those who, who want to sneak in, if you will. This is, this is what has sort of happened in, in my estimation with Ananias and Sapphira. Those who would come and try to draw near without actually belonging, we see that. Those, those are sort of repelled by the reality. When a people decide to hold fast to God's holiness, to reflect who he is in his holiness, it's, it's not inherently attractive to those who would want to sneak in and seek some benefit from God. And, and in that, um, the, the reality is that, but for those that are genuinely needy, those who, who do seek the Lord, who, who he's drawing, they are attracted. And those um, who he, he will call will come. 
And that uh, is borne out in the rest of this, this text here. So we see that there's a people, it says, um, they're all gathering together in Solomon's portico, but the others, it says, no one dared join them. That's, we'll get back to that. But then right after that, it says many signs and wonders are being done. And that eventually they're just bringing people out who had all these um, illnesses and, and um, who are oppressed with uh, spirits. And they're all being healed. And so those who are genuinely in need and who uh, are, are uh, being called by the Lord, those ones are the ones who will be drawn into a holy people. So um, God's, God's fearfulness and a people understanding what it means to live in light of that is what grows the church. Uh, we see this uh, just condensed down, one verse, Acts chapter 9, if you want to flip a couple pages over. Acts chapter 9, verse 31, says that the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace, and it was being built up and walking, listen, in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of his Holy Spirit. So you see that uh, these things are not uh, contradictions to one another, but they walk hand in hand. That the fear of the Lord and the comfort of the Holy Spirit are, um, are companions. And, and that well, um, because of the Holy Spirit, and because what it means to be um, included in God's family and to draw near to him um, through Christ, we understand that there's a comfort in his fearfulness. And so we say, well, doesn't, uh, doesn't the Bible command us all over not to fear, which I mentioned. It is the most frequent command, but it's not a, a coddling kind of command like, there, there, it's okay, God's not a fearsome God. That's, that's not the intent of, of fear not. In fact, uh, it's, it's most often used as a correction for those who are fearing some other thing. And then it, it's often followed by a realignment to something that is more fearful, namely God himself. So it's like you're fearing something you ought not to fear. And it says, don't fear that. This is the command often. Don't fear not. Don't fear that. Fear this. Fear the, fear the right thing. And so it's always a, a reassessment of what true danger is. Um, and, it's, and it's never given as like a, a, a it's a military kind of command. It's, it's a enter the battle. It's a assess, assess the powers that be and then um, realign what it is that you're worried about. Um, it wouldn't do us any good if the scripture was trying to tell us that God is not really all that fearful. It, it, think of like, um, you know, who says, I don't know, I, I feel like it's Superman. It's probably not. But, you know, it's like have no fear what, what superhero? Underdog. Underdog. Okay, okay. So suppose, <laughs> thank you for being on top of that. So have no fear, underdog is here, okay? And, um, but what if the pronouncement, the underdog is here, is not that great of news because he's not really that powerful of a, of a helper? He's not something to be, to be worried about. See, the, the reality of the announcement of the greatest power arriving is that it's a terror to the enemy and a comfort to the friend. And that's what the fear of God is supposed to be. Saying have no fear as an assurance that God is not dangerous would be silly. It would be sad. It wouldn't instill any confidence. This doesn't mean that there's no danger at all. It means that, that you have the, the superpower on your side. So if you're a friend, that's good. And if you're an enemy, it should terrify you, right? So, the, so the, the encouragement there, the, the, the drawing near, the invitation is then to come and be near as a, as a friend, not as one who's uh, the brunt of um, that power. So there's a particular adjustment then of, of right fear. It's not just don't fear anything. It's, it's don't fear the things that you ought not fear because there's one greater who, who you should fear. This is 
the Matthew um, chapter 20, oh, excuse me, 10, verse 28. Do not be afraid of those who can kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Instead, fear the one who can destroy both soul and body and hell. So we, we often, though, like, we don't walk around with real fears of who God is in our lives. And, and, and the immediacy of these other things, these other fears, end up taking greater precedent in our, in our perspective. Because um, the, the thing about um, this, this saying, well, don't, don't fear the one who can, who can kill your body. Fear the one who, after your body's dead, then can also throw that soul into hell. And so we, we think about that thing, that throwing the soul into hell part, that's far away, Right? And because we magnify the extent of our lives or whatever it is, and we think that's so delayed, all of these things that seem much more close to us are great big in our lives and great big in our perspective. And so we end up fearing all of the things that we ought not fear. Fear of man, fear of failure, fear of death, fear of situations, fear of poverty, fear of discomfort. And these things end up um, producing the, the choices and in our actions that we ought not make. And the fear of men is sort of this, this way of encompassing all of those things. We're warned over and over not, not to fear man. That's explicitly from Jesus, but also um, Proverbs 29 says that the fear of man is a, is a snare. It weaves for us a web that snags us in endless anxieties about the things that seem to be so detrimental to the here and now. Things that we can't really feel like we would bear, it would be difficult to, to walk through them. But God wants to set us free from those kinds of fears by fearing him as the greater source. I think we, we think of God as a, as a nice um, insurance policy. He's there after we die, and uh, that's good to know, and I, I'm glad I have this assurance. It's, it's like the extra life at the end that's good. I'm, I'm so happy I know that. But right now, it doesn't feel like it helps me as much. But God does not encourage us and help us by giving us just an extra life after, after we die, but by taking away the sentence of condemnation that is over our lives right now. And this is what it means to be set free. Not, not later on after you die, but right now, that you're free from those piling up fears and anxieties that seem like they are so much more important than the true fearful thing. So we're commanded then to live free of fear now. In 1 John 4, 18, it says there, there is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. Fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. And so that sounds like, well, is John then saying something different than what Jesus said, and something different than what Paul says when he says that we should fear God? He's not contradicting either one of those sources. He's effectively saying this. When we have come to understand the true nature of who God is, when we actually understand the nature of an all-powerful God who could do anything but chooses to come as the embodiment of love in Christ. And he condescends and he comes to us. And when we get to know that God, that God in Christ, in love, then we know the perfected love. And then that fear that had to do with the judgment that that God could bring has gone away. When we understand the security of being in Christ, when you understand that 
that, that there's no way, if you know God in Christ, that he's, that he's totally satisfied with who Christ is. There's, there's no way that you could ever dissatisfy God if you are in Christ. Then the fear of being punished is totally removed. But it leaves one thing. So understanding the nature of who God is, get the picture. If, if this God is as big as I think even this small portion of what's been revealed really is, that's a terrifying thing if I'm under that condemnation, if I'm on the enemy side. But in Christ, who totally satisfies God, if I'm in Christ, I can't dissatisfy him. But the reality has not gone away that he's the big God. But if the condemnation and the judgment is gone, the only thing left is living in light of the reality that he's still the big God. You don't remove the fact that he's still all-powerful and fearsome, but you live in light of it. So that's why he says you must abide then or remain in love because wrath is only reserved for those who are enemies of God, who are not in God's love, who 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 will not in faith and in unbelief, they, re, they reject the provision of Christ, who will be the satisfying thing for the judgment that would hang over their heads otherwise. So it compels us now to remain or abide in love. This is John's favorite term, abide, abide, remain. Stay where you're at. Stay close to the source and, and don't find yourself on the other side of that. So Hebrews 10.26 says it like this. The problem is that if we deliberately go on sinning after we've received knowledge of the truth, what kind of knowledge of the truth? Well, the knowledge that God is every bit who he says he is and that Jesus is really the sacrifice. He says, if we receive the knowledge of that truth, there is no further sacrifice that can remain but only fearful expectation of judgment. If we're waiting for something else to reveal itself, only raging fire that will consume all of his adversaries. So the encouragement there is to not be an adversary. And it's not like some mystery about how you cannot be on the wrong side of God. So again, we return to the naturally protective element of what fear is supposed to produce. Not so that we would cower in fear of God and judgment, but so that fear would press us in close to him. Fear has a good purpose when it's rightly placed when it's manifested in the right ways because it makes us fearless towards men and fearful towards the right things. And all of the things that we previously feared losing, instead of becoming um, things that we, we're afraid to lose or, or they're, they're life-taking, they become life-giving. I want to read you just a, a few lines from Isaiah 51. Because it goes on and on, really breaking out what Jesus has to say about our, our problem of fearing man. I'll start in verse 12. So this is Isaiah speaking for the Lord. I, I am he who comforts you. Who are you that you are afraid of a man who dies? Of the son of man who is made like grass? Why, why are you afraid of a, a mortal being who is going to die and, and, and deteriorate? Have you forgotten the Lord, your maker, who stretched out the heavens and laid the foundations of the earth? And you fear continually all the day because of the wrath of the oppressor. He who is bowed down shall be speedily released. 
He shall not die and go down to the pit, neither shall his bread be lacking. I am the Lord your God, who stirs up the sea so that its waves roar. The Lord of hosts is his name. That's, that's the Lord of, of the armies of heaven. And I put my words in your mouth, and I've covered you in the shadow of my hand, establishing the heavens and laying the foundations of the earth, and saying to Zion, you are my people. And in the same breath, he's saying, I am the fearsome, terrifying Lord, but I have you in the shadow of my hand. That the protection of the Lord is provided in the nearness to him. But it doesn't negate the power. I, I would read the rest of it, but it actually goes on for the rest of the chapter. And it's so good because it encourages us about how, how small we think of God and how big we think of man. And how big we make our problems to be. And how, how, how detrimental we, we, we tend to pretend that some of these things that we fear would be to our lives. So can I realign maybe three of our greatest fears? If we're more fearful of what someone could take from us, what we might lose in this world, we're supposed to draw near to God. We're supposed to look to God and believe that he alone is the provider and giver of all things. That nothing can be taken or given without him. That's the foundation of the fear. If, if God is creator and giver and sustainer, of all things, there's your, your foundation. So there's nothing that man can take from you or give to you that is not directly from his hand. If we're fearful of what man could say about us, how their opinions or words could speak wrongly or hurt our sense of worth, or that someone's opinion about us might be bad or our reputation might be maligned, we look to God in whose image we're made. And we look to Christ, the one whose image we're being conformed into. We realize that we have a greater identity than anyone could ever take from us or give to us. It's not by man's approval or the applause of men. We have an identity that's untouchable and cannot be taken away by the disapproval of words of others. How often are we so worried about what other people will say or think of us? There's probably fear number one. The protection that right fear offers us is that lesser fears are crushed only when we seek refuge in here, in him. If we fear being in need or in difficulty, the, the, the problem of experiencing hardship financially or physically, we look to the Holy Spirit, our comforter, He's the deposit of this eternal inheritance, a treasure that uh, is beyond measure, exceeds any value of any trinket or toy that you could acquire here. Something that doesn't tarnish or rust. We look to the reality that the Holy Spirit is the sign and the seal that we are sons and daughters of the King. We're seated with Christ in the heavenly places. We're rich beyond measure in the treasure of all that heaven has to offer that doesn't just exceed what we have here in value and in volume, but it outlasts all that we know. The fear of God is a tear to his enemies and an invitation to his beloved. Look real quick with me at verse 13 of chapter 5. 
It says there that um, they're gathering together in Solomon's portico and no one else dared join them. This is just something to prime your thoughts for next week. Do we really, are, are we supposed to be a people that, that, are, that other people are terrified of? Is that what's happening here? Does it mean that everyone was afraid of joining the church? It says just before that that they're favored among the people and that they were thought highly of. And then even going on as they're arrested, that they, the, uh, the priests and the Pharisees uh, fear being stoned because of the reputation that they had among the people. We're told explicitly that they are together among the people. Join here has an important designation. No one else dared join them. No, no one else dared join them. Join here means something like to, to throw in with, to jump upon. To, it, 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 later on in, um, in Acts, uh, the this, this same word is translated where um, uh, Philip's told to join the chariot of the, of the eunuch. He's supposed to jump on it. It's like it's already moving. He's not invited. He's supposed to go really encroach on something and, 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 and really force himself, if you will, thrust upon the community. So think about it this way. It says, no one would dare jump in to the group of the beloved, understanding what it, that means. No one would cling to. No one would presume upon. And this is what the fear of God produces in a holy people. No one else dared join them in a false way. No one would intrude upon the holy people who carry the name of God. These, this is the kind of people that we're called to be in fear of the Lord. I'll close this morning reading out of Psalm 103, verses 10 through 14. Hear both the fear of the Lord and the promise of his love. Verse 10 says, he does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love towards those who fear him. Towards those who fear him. That's who he sets his covenant love on. So that as far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us as a father shows compassion to his children. So the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. For he knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. He removes our sins. He loves us in a covenant way his steadfast love when we fear him. He removes our transgression. He treats us as children. He has compassion on us when we fear him. Let's pray. Father, I pray this morning that we would behold a great big God who is fearsome, but who invites us near. God, I pray that we would See the truth in what it means to, to find refuge in your fearsomeness. God, that we would not treat you as a, as a tame lion. We think of you as a controlled fire in a fireplace, God. But you are 
the fire that can and does consume. But you've made way for us to be new.